0: And if you need a Bible, you can just lift up your hand and uh, we will make sure that you have one to follow along with us. So Revelation chapter three, and tonight we will look at the seventh of seven churches, Revelation chapter three, starting in verse 14. There was a hand up here in front. It, it, it got weary though, it fell. In our study last week, as we looked at the church in Philadelphia and Jesus' letter to them, we saw the best of the seven churches represented there, and we heard what Jesus had to say to the best of the seven churches. This week, as we look at the seventh, the church in Laodicea, we see the absolute worst by far of all of the seven churches. So be encouraged. Over the past several weeks, we have looked at six uncompromising attributes of any truly Christ-centered church in any generation. The reason why, of course, there are seven letters to seven churches here in this section of the book of Revelation is because the number seven is symbolic of a whole or complete And the message that Jesus would have us to see as we look at these seven letters to seven churches are what are the uncompromising attributes or things that are important to Jesus as He considers a church that would be a church that brings honor and glory to His name. What are these six uncompromising attributes? Well, the first one that we saw is unconditional love. Unconditional love. A church can have the best worship, the best music, the best teaching, the best programs, the best outreach, the best in every way outwardly. And yet if it lacks love, agape love, unconditional love towards God and for each other, then Paul says that it's nothing more than a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. Unconditional love is uncompromising in the church of Jesus Christ. Number two, unconditional faithfulness. Faithfulness to Jesus, even unto death. It's an unconditional. Number three, uncorrupted doctrine. And as a result, consistent living. That if you have bad beliefs, then you're going to also have bad behavior. The two are inseparable. You cannot Change, interchange. If you're not believing right, you're not going to be behaving right. You show me the way a person lives and I'll tell you what they believe. And an uncompromising truth in the church is uncorrupted doctrine and as a result, consistent living. The fourth, absolute authenticity. We saw the church in Sardis that they had a name as though they lived. They had a formula that they were operating within. And yet, as Jesus looked into the heart of that church, he saw that that's all they had was a name and a form. They didn't love him in truth. Their authenticity and their affections were outward other. Absolute authenticity. The fifth that we looked at in our study last week, the church in Philadelphia, is radical obedience. We looked at a church that relied completely upon the person and the work of Christ within their lives. And they were a a people that kept his word. They were faithful to the doctrine, to the truth of the word, not just in their hearing and in their mind, but in their heart and with their hands. They were doers of the word and for that they were commended and held up before us as the picture of a perfect church. And this week, the sixth. Tonight, as we look at the church in Laodicea, we see the sixth uncompromising attribute of a Christ-centered church, and that is humble dependence. The church in Laodicea. Laodicea was located 40 miles east inland from the city of Ephesus. It was a city of great wealth, of great commerce and great culture. There was a very unique soil type in the city of Laodicea, and the pastures there supported a very unique type of sheep. Their wool was silky, sheen, black. And of course, if you have a sheep that produces silky, sheen, black wool, you're going to sell a very unique silky, sheen, black garment. And that for your city is going to be a very great economic advantage, which was the case in the city of Laodicea. From that soil, they also extracted what became known as Phrygian powder. They were able to make an eye salve and an ear salve from this powder, which they extracted from this unique clay, and it became a medical kind of advantage or cutting edge to those surrounding cities and regions, and again, another source of great affluence and wealth. They've done studies in recent years of the soil, the clay there in Laodicea, and they found that there actually is nothing medicinal about the Fergian power that they got from that clay, but hey, if the shoe fits and people will buy it. It was also a great center of medical advancement. It was in the city of Laodicea that it was first kind of discovered or practiced that complex diseases require complex medications. That is medications that treat more than one symptom or more than one problem. That originated in the city of Laodicea. So you can see their garment industry, their medical advancements, their robust economy. The city of Laodicea was a very affluent and advanced, complex city. Now there are certain attributes of the state of New York that make it very much like the city of Laodicea in ancient times. Of course, I'm speaking of our affluence and our complexity. Allow me to give you a little bit of insight right at the onset as to what the problem was there in the church and also where we're going in our study tonight. And that is this. That the inherent danger of material wealth is that to think that I'm doing okay materially Can make me believe that I'm doing okay spiritually. The inherent danger in material wealth is to think that because I'm doing all right materially, I must be doing all right spiritually. And this is just not true. What does Jesus have to say? Picking up in verse 14, it says, Unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans, write, These things saith the Amen. By way of introducing himself to them, the first word he uses to describe himself or introduce himself to the church is the word Amen. We use the word Amen as the final word at the end of a prayer. And it's in that very context that Jesus is addressing them. He's addressing them as the final word. The one who holds absolute authority, who speaks last, and his word is final. Jesus is the final word. And he addresses himself in that way. He is the last word. And the final word is talking to this church. There's no one that they can appeal to. There's no one that they can say, well, let's get someone else's uh, thoughts on, on, on our real condition or on how things really are under the surface. But no, you can't go any higher than the Amen. When the Amen speaks, the Amen has spoken. And that's who Jesus addresses himself as to them. He says, I am the Amen. And then he goes on and he says, also the faithful and true witness. The faithful witness. Now, a witness is one who testifies to what he has seen or heard. And as Jesus has looked in and examined what's going on within this church, he's tested their quality and the truth of the things that he's saying. He's declaring to them that the things that I'm saying to you are absolutely faithful and absolutely true. I am the faithful and the true witness. And what I'm saying to you, you can trust me. What I'm saying to you, you can believe that it's true, both in my indictment against you and also my counsel to heal you. It is absolutely faithful and true. And then thirdly, he calls himself the beginning of the creation of God. Now the Jehovah's Witnesses have grabbed a hold of this verse. And they've said, ha! See, we've shown it, we've proved it, that Jesus is a created being, because it says right here that he's the beginning of the creation of God. That Jesus is not synonymous with God, but he is something that was created. No, 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 no. Listen, when you look at it in the language, this is not speaking of chronology. That is of something that was created at a certain point in time. But when he calls himself the beginning of the creation of God, it is a term that denotes rank. And that is that it isn't chronologically he's the first, but he is the first in rank. That there is no one higher than Jesus. The buck stops with him. The Bible says that the Father has committed all judgment unto the Son. And he is the final word. He's the Amen. He's the faithful witness. He's the captain of the Lord's host, the beginning of the the creation of God, and with him is absolute and total authority, the ruler of God's creation. Now, what does the amen, the faithful witness, and the ruler of the creation of God have to say to this church here in Laodicea? Verse 15, he says, I know thy works that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, thou wert cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. He says to this church, I know thee, I've examined thee, I've looked at you, and I have found that you are lukewarm. The idea is that it's something that is insipid to the taste. It is sickening to God as he tastes the flavor of this lukewarm church. He's saying to them that he's annoyed at the temperature that they've taken and that he actually wants them out of his presence. Now, I I tried to sugarcoat that the best I could to make it sound gracious, but that's exactly what it says. He calls them lukewarm, and it's a term that denotes that he is sickened with them because of it. Well, what does this mean when Jesus says that he would that they were hot or cold? Now, we understand what it means to be hot. We say, well, that person's on fire for the Lord. Or man, they have the fire of the Holy Ghost within them. They're hot. They're fervent for the things of Christ. And, you know, we kind of automatically take on the assumption we know what that means. But... What does it mean when Jesus says that he desires that they would be cold? We would logically assume that to be cold would be the opposite of hot, that we're distant from Christ that spiritually we've so cool that we're to the point where we're actually frozen like we would make fun of certain sects or denomination calling them the frozen chosen or something you know that that man you're hot on this side you're cold on this side the hot ones raise their hand the cold ones stand like this you know and and that's kind of what it is but but wait a minute wait a minute could it stand to reason that Jesus would actually want someone to be cold Some have suggested that maybe that makes them reachable, but would Jesus ever say to a person that I want you in a position where if you died, you would go to hell? No, I don't think that that's exactly what that means. Well, it helps to understand a little bit that the city of Laodicea itself was in the center of three cities, or or the center of two cities. There was a city on either side of it. Up in the mountains, over and above Laodicea, there was a city called Hierapolis. And in Hierapolis, there was a place where there was hot springs. And if you've ever been to a place like that, man, it's wild. I visited Marietta, California, and there's hot springs out there, and just these little natural pools that come up from the ground, and you can actually sit in them, and it's like bathing in a hot tub. And it's just these natural waters, and it's very soothing, and, and it, it, it's medicinal almost. And so people would go from Laodicea and they would go to Hierapolis and they would go to these hot springs and they would bathe in these pools and it was very soothing to them. It was very medicinal as they would sit and soak and just just let the impurities be kind of boiled out of them as they sat in these springs. On the other side of Laodicea was the city of Colossae. You may know, of course, that Paul planted a church there and there's a letter to the Colossians in the Bible. And the city of Colossians was situated right on the Lycos River. And so people would go from Laodicea into Colossae to gather the cool and refreshing waters from the Lycos River. They would bathe in them. They would drink of them. They would, they would just be refreshed themselves in the waters of the Lycos. The problem in Laodicea is that for all that they did have, what they didn't have was good water. And so they would go to the Hierapolis and they would take the water from the hot springs and they would try to get it back to Laodicea, only by the time they got there it was cooled off. It was now just warm and sulfuric and it was actually good for nothing. It wasn't the type of water you could drink and it had lost all of its healing qualities and so it was just basically warm and sickening water. The people that would try to bring water up from the Lycos River in Colossae, they would gather it when it was running and fresh, when it was refreshing and cool, and they would put it in the vessels. But by the time they would get it up to Ephesus, it was now just stagnant and stale. And it had lost its refreshing qualities. And it would be tolerated. It would be used because, hey, what choice do we have? But it wasn't like getting it from the source. And so lukewarm... To this city, they understood what it meant. That, That it was somewhere in the middle. That it isn't on the one side where there's healing powers, where there's something that's actually useful from it. It's not on the other where there's something cool, something refreshing. But it's been brought into a place of neutrality. And spiritually speaking, Jesus is saying to this church that you have come to a place of neutrality. You've become neutral in your Christian experience. You're just neutral. There's nothing uh, anymore about you that's any good. You're just stale. You're stagnant. You're warm and you're sulfuric. You're insipid to me and you're just lukewarm. You, church, Jesus is saying, you are in a neutral state. And in that state, you are useless. You're insipid to God and you're spiritually stale. We know that if a car is in neutral... The motor is running, but it's not going anywhere. It might have the potential to do something really great, but in the state that it's in, in that neutral state, it's just a pile of steel that's wasting fuel and polluting the air. That's all it's good for as long as it remains in a neutral state. Jesus spoke about, you know, to his disciples about a man who buried his talent. He said that the kingdom of God is likened unto a man who went on a far journey and he delivered his goods to his servants. And to each one, according to his several ability, to one he delivered five talents, to another he gave two, and to another he gave one. And it says that the man who was given five traded with the same and he earned five more. The man who was given two traded with the two and he earned two more. But the man who was given the one made a decision in himself, and he said, you know what, I'm not going to lose this talent. And though that might mean that I'm not going to use this talent, I'm going to bury it in the ground, so that at least when my Lord comes, I'll be able to give back to him that thing which was his. And so he buries the talent in the dirt, and he lives essentially in a state of neutrality, waiting for his Lord to return. Not busy, not doing anything, not growing, just stagnant. And Jesus said that when the Lord returned and he called his servants to give an account of what they had done, he spoke to the one with the five, and he said, well done, good and faithful servant. And likewise to the one with the two. But to the one who had buried his talent in the ground, Jesus, it says that he answered and he said unto him, thou wicked and slothful servant, thou knewest that I reap where I sowed not and gather where I have not strawed. Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, and then, at my coming, I should have received mine own with usury. Take therefore the talent from him and give it unto him which hath ten talents. for unto every one that hath shall be given, but he and he shall have abundance, but from him that hath not shall be taken away even what he hath, and cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That if you remain in a neutral state in your Christian experience, if you bury in the dirt the thing that God has given you, and you remain neutral in your Christianity, that you are absolutely useless to the kingdom of God. There is no such thing as neutral in the kingdom of God. If you choose in your Christian experience to remain neutral, then what you are essentially saying is that you are in favor of the status quo. That you, that you actually like the way things are right now and you're okay with that, that you're in favor of it. You see that there's a lost world out there that are people that are separated from Christ and that are perishing into an eternal hell, but that's okay with you. It doesn't matter, it's not affecting your experience and, and you can't really be troubled. You're neutral to it and so you're in a neutral state. You're, that's okay. You see the advancement of evil on planet earth and that's okay with you. You've chosen to stay in a neutral place where you're not, you don't want to say anything, you don't want to be offensive, you don't want to stand up for truth, but you're just in a neutral place where you're going to stay. You see the poor and the needy, the afflicted soul. But that's okay with you. You you understand and you recognize their quandary in this situation. But there's nothing that you really can do about it. So you feel. And so that's okay. A neutral position. You have gifts and talents. That constantly in your mind you're thinking about how can I market these things in order to somehow make some money. How can I market my talents? Where could they be plugged in in a way where I, you know I, I could actually store something up for the future? You think that way in your mind, but then when it comes to using those talents to glorify, magnify, and build up the kingdom of God, you remain in a neutral state. I don't want to use any of those talents to do anything in the kingdom of God because that doesn't profit at all in the things of earth. And so you stay in a neutral state. And so the result is that you have a lukewarm and neutral Christianity. And it's a thing that Jesus looks at, and he says, I despise it, and it's annoying to me. What was the source of the lukewarmness in Laodicea? In verse 17, Jesus tells us, he says, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. Let me read it again. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. You are neutral in your Christianity because you are independently wealthy. You may recognize God, but concerning your life, your attitude is, I got here by myself, I don't need anyone, and I don't need anything. It's an attitude in the life. Now, I'm not saying that with your mind or with your mouth, but I'm saying that the way you live, the declaration of your life, is that there's an attitude of self reliance, of self satisfaction, and it's based on a notion of self sufficiency. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus spoke of a rich fool. In Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21, Jesus spoke these words. It says, he spoke a parable unto them, his disciples, saying that the ground of a certain rich man brought forth plentifully. Now, understand that that doesn't happen by itself. The ground does not bring forth plentifully by itself. The indication or implication is that this man was working the soil. That he was industrious, he was profitable, he was successful, he was a trophy of capitalism. He was a man that we would look at and we would say, now that is the kind of guy that knows how to take what he's been given and make something with it. He would be on the cover of magazines and editorialized about in newspapers and held up high as the trophy of American success. This man who took this piece of ground, this useless dirt, and turned it into a fortune. It brought forth plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do because I have no room where to bestow my fruits? I've run out of room. I've reached the you know, FDIC limit in all of my bank accounts. I'm over $100,000. i am not insured. I can't find any place else to put this money I've got so much. What am I going to do? And so he said this, this I will do. I will pull down my barns. And I will build greater. I'll go from stocks to hedge funds. I'll make it bigger. I'll make it greater. I'll find an avenue and a vehicle that can handle all of this wealth that's coming into me. And there will I bestow all my fruits and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, thou hast much goods laid up for many years. Take thine ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, this is what this man says about his life. As he looks at his own life, material wealth must mean spiritual health. His assessment of himself is, I'll build bigger barns. I'll say to my soul, you have much goods laid up for many years. Eat, drink, and be merry. The blessing of God is upon my life. That's what he says about himself. But what does God say as God looks at the soul of the same man? Verse 20. But God said unto him, Thou fool. The world says, My God, look what he's done with what he's been given. The industry, the capitalistic fervor, the understanding. God says, thou fool. This night thy soul shall be required of thee. and Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? So is he that layeth up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. God looks at this man and he says, You mistook material blessing for spiritual acceptance and security. And what he said about his own life was not the same thing as what God said when God looked at his life. You think you're okay. But what does God say to the Laodiceans who thought they were okay? He says, because you, are, he says, uh, because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. That's what they said about themselves. But what does God say about the church in Laodicea? But you know not... In verse 17, that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I don't know if there's a more vast difference between two assessments of the same thing. They're both looking at the same exact thing, and yet their assessment is completely the opposite of what God sees when He looks into it. They see blessing, they see riches. They see increase with goods. They have need of nothing. Everything's great. God looks in and He says, You're wretched. You're exceedingly wicked. You raised your hand. You accepted Christ. You profess my name, but yet you're exceedingly wicked in your position and your standing. He says, You're miserable. You're rich, yes. Your economy is robust. Your advancements are complex, but look at the state of your soul. You're miserable internally. You may have a full wallet and a large estate, but God looks in and he says, from heaven's perspective, you are poor. Spiritually, eternally, you have nothing. You've built large barns. You boast of great success, but in eternal life, you're going to be poor and stripped of all of it. He says that you're blind. This great industry that produced this eye salve that was so good, that that was to be so healing in its power, Jesus looked at the people and he said, you're blind. You don't have perspective. You lack total vision. You have nothing. And then finally he says, you're naked. Now that's embarrassing. They don't even know it. He said, you don't even know that you're naked. And I was thinking about this. What would it be like if you go through three quarters of your day You know, you travel in, you're at work, you're conducting yourself. And then all of a sudden, someone says, you know, I don't want to offend you. (laughs) But did you know you're naked? And I was thinking, you know, here I am, standing here, you know. And here's this church that thought everything was okay. And yet, to the cloud of witnesses, the angels peering in, wondering at the grace of God. The Spirit of God that hovers over the church and looks into the thing. As everybody thought they were so secure. Secure they were an embarrassment and a shame and that they were naked, not covered. And I know that there's some here tonight that you think you're okay. That you look at the outward conditions of your life and you translate that into how you must be doing spiritually or what God thinks and God sees. But you've set yourself in neutrality in your Christianity. You're in a neutral position. You're lukewarm. And therefore, God's view is insipid. Stale, annoying, sickening. You're silent when it's time to speak. You're ignorant to the afflictions and evils of the world. You're tolerant of wickedness in society. You're distracted by the pleasures and the cares of this life. And you're slothful when it comes to spiritual activities in the service of God. It's neutral, lukewarm Christianity what jesus sees in the church of laodicea but the good news is in verse 18 is that god doesn't want to destroy them and neither does he want to destroy the person who's neutral or lukewarm today he says i counsel thee he doesn't counsel anybody that he wants to destroy i've talked to some people and i've even had the thought myself from time to time that man god just wants to destroy me that his will is just to wipe me out, that he's just waiting for the opportunity. Listen, if God wanted to destroy you, he could destroy you. And the fact that you're sitting here right now listening to my voice means that God doesn't want to destroy you. The Bible says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and that his desire is to heal and to save, not to destroy and to cast off. And even to the... Now listen, have you ever eaten something that's so disgusting that you want to spew it out of your mouth, like Jesus said. My wife, one time, she made this thing called pumpkin surprise, <laughs> and I did spew it out. You know, I mean, it was terrible. I, she's an incredible cook; she, she really is. I'm not, but she likes to experiment, and she just made the pumpkin surprise, and I was surprised, you know. And but to think that there could be something that uh, uh, of a much greater caliper in the mind and the heart of the Lord Jesus, and yet it still isn't in his mind that he wants to cast it off or destroy it. He gives to them the counsel they need. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me, buy from me, gold tried in the fire. How ironic that that's what they had in abundance, physically, gold. And yet Jesus would look and say, your gold is moth-eaten, it's rusted and corrupted, and you're poor in spiritual things. But if you come to me, did you hear it? If you come to me, repent of your self-sufficiency. Get off the horse of, I can do it myself. I'll do it my way. I'll work it out. I'll figure it to be. Jesus says, come to me. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. He said, come to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. I counsel thee to buy of me. Come to me. Gold, tried in the fire. It's interesting, isn't it, these days, that when you turn on your radio, what do you hear? Buy gold. You know, David Lerner. Hi, I'm David Lerner. You know, (laughs) you need to add gold to your portfolio, you know, and and, and you hear these things constantly, buy gold. Gold is going to double. Gold is, listen, Jesus is telling you to buy gold, but you can't get it from Lear Capital, you know. Well, where do I get it? Well, again, Luke chapter 12, verse 21 says, Everyone who layeth up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. And then just 11 or 12 verses later, he gives the answer. In Luke twelve thirty-three. he says, Sell what you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags which wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that faileth not, where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupteth. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't make your investments in the things of this world. Because if you lay up and store up treasure for yourselves, you're not rich towards God. It's all going to go to somebody else. But the investment that you make in spiritual things, the time, the energy, the love, the affection, the effort that you give to the kingdom of God, will pay an eternal dividend, an eternal reward It will never be taken from you. He says, buy of me gold that's been tried in the fire. That you may be rich. And, he says, white raiment. Now, do you remember before I, I told you about the pastures there in Laodicea? What do they produce? A sheep with a black, shiny wool. The best they could do was a black, shiny garment. And it made them materially wealthy. But what it could never do was cover the shame of their nakedness internally. And yet Jesus counsels them, come, I will give you white raiment, white shining raiment, white brighter than the noonday sun, and it will hide the shame of your nakedness. And guess what? You can't get this raiment in any of the seven cities. It can only come from me, Jesus says, come to me. And then he says, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve that thou mayest see. Come to me. I'll give you clear vision and I'll give you clear perspective. I'll help you to see. I'll help you to understand. But notice that it comes from him as we come to him. Verse 19, he says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Isn't it a great comfort to those of us that have been exercised by the rod of God's discipline that this is the fact of the matter? I mean, I remember when I first got saved, I got in a whole bunch of trouble you know and I, I've shared the story I won't go through it again but I remember I, I called up Georgia who was just my friend at the time she was the, the only real Christian person I knew and so I called her and I told her what happened and I thought oh I've just totally dragged the name of Christ through the mud here I am a new Christian and and she just she so graciously just said to me no and she read me the scripture right out of Hebrews where it says that those whom I love I rebuke and chasten she she read it to me don't despise the chastening of the Lord you know because who those whom he loves he rebukes and chastens don't worry he 's got you he'll work it out and, and boy did he did he. I remember talking to a friend of mine recently we were talking about the discipline of of god and and he he was telling me he's uh he's some kind of a technician, and he was doing something at a an all girls' college. And he was working in this kind of indoor gymnasium facility, uh, and he was up on a ladder, and, and it was really hot, you know. It was summer, midsummer. And so he, and he's a Christian, but he just thought, you know, I'm just gonna take off my shirt. It's really hot in here. And so he took off his shirt, and there was this whole class of, of these girls that were kind of walking around this indoor track inside this room. And, and no sooner did he get his shirt off, but the ladder kicked out, and he fell off the ladder all the way to the ground. And and I laughed as he told me the story. But then he said, but do you know this? He said, do you know I've never felt more loved than when I was lying there on the ground in a pile of pain and misery, embarrassed as I heard laughs and chuckles coming from the tracks surrounding me. I never felt more loved because I knew that that was God. Those whom I love, I rebuke and chasten. Listen, if he didn't love you, he would allow you to continue in that state that you're in. If he didn't love you, he would allow you to just continue down that path of destruction. But the fact that he's addressing it, bringing it up and calling it forward is because he desires to heal it. Because he desires to forgive. Because he wants to set free. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. He doesn't just say repent or accept thou repent, but he says be zealous and repent. That means with earnest, with passion, with emotion, with feeling, with reality, not just simply a little light switch that you kind of quietly switch in your mind or a decision that maybe later on down the road I'm going to get to that as I stew these things over, but he's saying be zealous, run back towards God. It's written in the aorist tense, which means that he's not giving a general command, but he's emphatically saying, repent right now. Give yourself completely back into the hand of God. Repent with earnest zeal. Now, passionately, zealously, earnestly. That's his counsel. And then notice what he says as he goes on from that in verse 20. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Do you hear what that says? To stand means persistent availability. What does that mean? It means that he's waiting. Persistent availability means that he's waiting. That It's like, you know, when, when you know, the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons come to the door, you know, and you're like, hide. And you, I saw someone in there, you know, and, and the door keeps knocking, and they're just waiting. But see this isn't Jehovah's Witnesses it's not the Mormons it's not you know that you know great aunt or stepmother you know or something it's, it's none of those things where you don't want to come but it's Jesus it's the son of God the amen the faithful witness the firstborn the beginning of the creation of God the one who holds all things in his hand and that all judgment and all eternity is held in the palm of his hand and it says that he stands at the door of your heart and he knocks and he is persistently available that he waits that you right now have the potential to make Jesus wait how long has Jesus been waiting i'll repent i'll get right i'm going to get right i'm going to get right next week next next time next bible study next conversation next chance he says repent right now he's waiting I stand at the door and knock. Well, what's he waiting for? And what happens if I answer it? What's going to happen if I say, okay, Lord, and I actually let him in? He says, if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. And I will sup with him and he with me. I will rebuke him. I will tell him all of the things that he should have been doing for all of these years. I, no. He says, I'm going to fellowship with you. If you let me in, I'm going to fellowship with you. I'm going to interact with you. There's going to be a, a friendship. I no longer call you servants, but I call you my friends because a servant doesn't know what his Lord does. But when you let me in, when you come to me, when you begin to depend upon me, There's going to be a fellowship. There's going to be intimacy and reality. That's my chief desire. That's what I want with you. That knocking that you're hearing, that voice that's calling, it isn't calling you back into religious service. I'm not calling you to fill the seat in church that's been void and vacant for so long, but I'm calling you back into a relationship. I want you to know what it's like, again, to hear my voice speaking to you, to know the touch of my spirit and the leading and direction of my eye that's guiding you. To again have my counsels, to, to sit at my table and to bring me into that relationship or bring me into that employment or bring me into that situation, that neighborhood or that conflict and hear my counsel again. Watch how I direct and lead your life. Experience what it's like to just sit in my presence when there's nothing to give and nothing to get, but what it's like to just sit with me and allow my spirit to wash over your heart and to minister to your soul any man hear my voice, I will come in and I will sup with him the most intimate of experiences you will have with me if you allow it. And if anyone answers his call to fellowship with him now, notice what he says in verse 21. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne. If you allow me to fellowship with you now, I'll allow you to rule with me later. That sounds like a really cool opportunity. Even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. Jesus had the same temptation that you and I face. He had the ability to use his gifts to magnify and benefit himself. He could have held a neutral position in a battle against evil. Satan came to him and and offered him and said, hey, just throw yourself down from here. No, in fact, even one better, just bow the knee. All you got to do is worship me for one minute and this will all be yours. Do you realize the whole reason Jesus came was to redeem the world? Satan, the rightful owner of it, as we will see when we get to Revelation chapter four and five, don't worry, I'll explain, said, I'll give it to you. I'll hand the deed right over, just bow the knee. And Jesus said, no, I'm not going to take the easy way. I'm not going to lie in a place of neutrality because the ends justify the means. Hey, I'll be accomplishing that which I was sent to do. But he came down from that mountain victorious so that he could go up another one, Mount Calvary, and spread out his arms and die for humanity so that we could be forgiven and set free. Jesus could have justified sin in the flesh. He was God. And he could have denied the cross and still held his crown. But he overcame. And he calls us to do the same. He says, Be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And he calls us to do the same. That we don't fall into the same plight as the Laodiceans. That we're content to live a neutral Christianity to be lukewarm in their faith, to be disengaged in the things that really matter because of an excuse for the responsibilities that they have. As we close, in this last letter, the call to the church is clear. The call to us is clear. The Spirit of God is looking for those that will move away from their spirit of independence And come to a place of absolute reliance and love for Jesus Christ and nothing else. To move out of a place of neutrality and to engage in the calling that you have received as a son or a daughter of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. As a citizen of heaven, the Bible says you are dead with Christ and your life is hidden with him in in, in God. And that when he is appear, who is our life, we also shall appear with him in glory. And therefore would mortify the deeds of our body which are upon this earth. He's calling us to stop remaining silent out of fear of what people are going to think or what they're going to say. To stop tolerating evil because it's the overarching, dominating theme of the day and that all things are just going to go this way. But he says, no, don't stay in that place of neutrality. Stand up for what's right. Stand in the gap. Stop ignoring those that are impoverished and afflicted, thinking that it's too great. There's nothing that you can do. But think of Jesus who laid all down in order to reach us. The worship team can come. It starts with, as Jesus said, repentance. Earnest, passionate, immediate repentance. To see what God sees. That as we look at ourselves, rather than seeing ourselves as the world sees us, the Bible says that men will praise you when you do well for yourself. But to see what God sees. What does God see? If I really stop and just close my eyes and forget about what everybody sees and forget about all the facade and all of the masks and all the pictures and all the cliches and all that. And I really say, God, what is the real state Spiritually, what is my condition? Maybe I need to repent. Maybe I need to be honest that I am the epitome of lukewarmness, that I have become that insipidness that's become useless to the kingdom of God because of my pursuits in the kingdoms of men. He's calling us to repent. And then second of all, and it goes with the first, is to let him in. To let Jesus into our lives. Not just our church life, because even in Laodicea, Jesus had access to their church life. In Laodicea, no doubt, they would come into the building and they knew, they could say, praise the Lord. Hey, pray for me, I've got something going on this week. Or that they could say all the things, I mean, church is Church. But yet, Jesus was so far from everything outside of their free time. Jesus didn't have a part in it at all. Jesus is calling us to let let him into our free time. Let him into that time that we would begin to say like David, as the deer pants for the water brooks, so longeth my soul after God. When will I come and appear before God? Oh, Lord, you have searched me and know me. Lord, search me and try my heart. Know my thoughts, Lord. I want to know you like Paul, to say that I may know him and the fellowship of his suffering, if by any means I might be conformed into the image of his death. But as we begin to just allow him access, we let him in, we answer the knock at the door and we give him access to our free time. That we let him into our family time. That it isn't weird for us to talk about the Bible and to share about spiritual things or talk about what stumbles us or be spiritual in our homes, in the presence of our children, or in the presence of our parents, or in the presence of aunts and uncles. The final non-negotiable characteristic of the true Christian is absolute dependence upon God. As we close the service tonight, we're going to sing this song, I Need Thee, every hour, this great hymn, as we declare our need upon Jesus. The front of the church is going to be open. And the lights will be dimmed and we'll sing this song with our hearts to the Lord. And if you feel the Lord is calling you to repent, you're welcome to, if you want, come forward and zealously, earnestly, before God, kneel and say, God, heal this heart. Fix this problem that's in me. I'm not doing this before anybody else, Lord Jesus, but before you and you alone, Lord, let me turn back, hear the voice of my repentance, the voice of my cry. Let's sing this song to the Lord now as we close.